Before we get started, be sure to check out this week's Amazon link. This time around, we have books by J. Allen Hynek. He was a pretty big deal when it comes to Project Blue Book, so I think his stuff is definitely worth checking out. He was a skeptic during his years working for Project Blue Book, but afterwards, after he retired from that service, he did a complete 180 and became a total believer. We've talked to him about him before on this show, and he's got many books about various topics, and some of them even his son got involved with after the fact. So check him out. There's going to be a link in the description. This is an affiliate link. Your purchase helps support the show and doesn't cost you anything extra. All right, and now it's time for the show. It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent Ether and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out all of our other links in the description under the link tree. I recommend the Discord. This week's episode, Project Blue Book, part five. Five. (laughs) (laughs) Or should I say, from the files of Project Blue Book, part five. I messed that up. Oh, well. You know, I was waiting for Agent ETA to do his entrance. I almost missed it. Yeah, he's not here. So I got some good news and some bad news. The, The bad news is that Agent ETA is sick and he won't be on the show. The good news is... Got all the all the dead weight is gone. All the useless people who contribute nothing. <laughs> we have only the best agents for you tonight. <laughs> well, I thank you. I guess <laughs> no riffraff, no shenanigans. People like the riffraff shenanigans. Just pure. I know. I'm just talking shit because <laughs> I'm gonna tell them because <laughs> ETA is not gonna listen to this probably. So I can say whatever I want. Well, I'm gonna tell him though. <laughs> ETA is a complete degenerate. He adds nothing to the show, and I'm glad he's not here. No, I'm just kidding. Wow. <laughs> You're in the mood. That's harsh, huh? No, yeah. right? No, no, just kidding. <laughs> he's he's uh, he's real sick and he can't make it, unfortunately, so he can't be here. But uh, hopefully next week, you know. But anyways, this week's episode, I was, so I was on vacation over the weekend and I just sort of uh, was not doing show stuff because I was on vacation. So I didn't do the... Um, I didn't do the normal stuff that I normally do for the show. Like I'm a little behind on the edits. So for all of our Patreon people, I apologize for the early lack of early access. I am going to edit that stuff shortly and also apologizing to the top tier who did not get to vote on this week's topic because I didn't make one. But uh, yeah, so next week there will definitely be a vote. And as far as the voting goes, it's not necessarily going to be every single time. For example, we have episode number 150 coming up pretty soon here. And somebody said, dude, episode 150, you should do something special for that. So I was thinking of doing like for episode 150, instead of doing a regular case file, we could look back on all of the previous case files and talk about like our favorites or discuss some of them or whatever. Just do sort of like a, you know, like a greatest hits kind of a show. That is a really fun idea. Yeah, I thought it'd be a lot of fun to do something like that. So Hey, <laughs> shut up, Agent Redacted. Get Go to your room. <laughs> it's 
No, it was actually Agent Redacted's idea. <laughs> but, <laughs> was uh, it really? Yeah, that's why he's saying it's stupid. <laughs> he's being funny. But um, yeah, so for that's an example. Other times there might be something that is timely, like the Georgia Guidestones. So there are going to be certain times when we can't or don't do the vote. But in general, I'm going to try to do the vote at least twice a month. Can I vote? Well, yeah, if you join our Patreon. I'm not entirely unlike a Patreon subscriber. That's true. But if you want to vote, you have to vote. <laughs> you have to join the Patreon to vote. So uh, if, you know, I don't if you're on the show, that's cool. It seems redundant. <laughs> but, but you don't get a vote. I don't get a vote. Nobody gets a vote unless you're a Patreon. So uh, I do get to choose the topics, though, <laughs> that people get to vote on. So it's sort of sort of cheating, I guess. But hey, somebody's got to choose them, you know. Um, right now, we're just doing two different topics but uh, you know the, to vote from. But, you know, the more people there are, the more topics we can have to select from. And I'm still bummed that nobody chose, not even a single person voted for the Yule Cat from Iceland. <laughs> so maybe I'll, maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll skip the vote and do that one, or maybe we'll do Christmas themed cryptids or something for the holidays. I don't know. That reminds me, there's an Amazon commercial out. Not to you know spotlight Amazon or anything, but it, it involves a yeti. Yeah. Have you seen that? No. Oh, yetis get lonely at Christmas, apparently. Yeah. Well, hey, look, I hate Jeff Bezos as much as the next guy, but they have a really good program <laughs> for for affiliates. So, you know, he just announced, I think he's going to donate a ton of money to charity. Yeah, hopefully he does. Hopefully he follows through. That'd be yeah. great. I'm sure that money could really help a lot of people. And, we shall see. And Yeah, and we, we will see. Maybe he reached a point in his life where he's like, dude, I've bought like all the yachts, all the jets, <laughs> you know, he's bought everything he can possibly buy and it's still barely made a dent. And he's like, well, uh, give some of it away, I guess. I don't know what to do with all this, you know. <laughs> He's been so wildly successful with his company, you know. Maybe pay his employees a little bit more. Nah, <laughs> never do that. All right, well, anyways, let's forget about Jeff Bezos. Uh, let's get to the episode. This time we're doing Project Blue Book, and I really, really like these episodes, Project Blue Book, because there are so many good fi cases filed away that nobody ever looks at. Like you can go on fold three and it'll tell you how many people have looked at this specific file. And I'm always shocked to see that some of the files is like 10 people. This file has been accessed 10 times, like total. It's like, no, basically nobody's looking at these things, like nobody. And I find that surprising and a little sad because of the volume of just, just bizarre and crazy and outrageous and just all the really cool stuff in there that nobody's looking at. So I'll look at it for you and find some of the good stuff. It turns out it's not that hard to find the good stuff because a lot of it is good stuff. Well said. Yeah. Well, thank you. I chose this time around, I chose to look at 1966 just because it was the busiest year. Blue Book has over 12,000 files on Fold 3 for 1966 alone. And the first episode we did, the the Michigan Swamp Gash was Swamp Gash. Swamp Gas was from 1966. It was a big year for UFOs. Got nothing in think I wasn't around for episode one. I, I do want to say that I listened to it uh -huh. and it's so different yes. from the feel of the episode, the flavor that you're doing now, but it's still a really good episode. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah. In the early days, I wanted to do more of like a documentary style and uh, more scripted. But I found that overall, uh, 
Um, well, I started, the first two episodes were by myself, and then I was having a phone conversation with ETA, and we just so happened to be talking about some conspiracy-type nonsense, as we do. And I had been thinking, you know, it'd be nice to have a co-host. Hmm, I wonder who the co-host could be. And then, like, halfway <laughs> through the conversation, I realized, like, holy shit, I should see if ETA wants to come on. It just hadn't occurred to me. I don't know why, for whatever reason. I guess I'm kind of a dumbass. But, yeah, and then he came on the show, and that changed the whole dynamic of everything. And in addition, the first two episodes I did more like I did sound effects and stuff like that, which I that I wanted to do more of a scripted thing like that. But it takes a lot of time to edit all that stuff, like those sound effects and, you know, this writing out the script and everything. It just takes a ton of time and it's just not possible to do a weekly show. I could do a monthly show doing it like that, but definitely not a, a weekly. But also when you have more people on the show, it's just more fun to do it non-scripted, just to do like a conversational style. Lots of fun to do it that way. So that's why we sort of transitioned over to that. And of course, uh, we were doing, used to do a non-explicit show, but uh, Agent ETA is very explicit and he's pretty funny too. So I, I figured at some point, I was like, well, this is just too funny to edit out all of his explicit stuff. So I, I decided to keep it in at some point. <laughs> so now we have the show that we have. For better or worse. Well, I like it. Well, thanks. I like it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, originally, Agent Ether was sort of looking at me cross-eyed like, you're doing a show about what? And she didn't really get it. But then she heard, she listened, just so happened to listen to one of the episodes with me, ETA, and Kruger. That might have been one of the first episodes she ever listened to, actually, because she was sort of like, you're doing a show about What? Okay, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> you know, like, just thinking the whole thing's kind of. But then she listened to the show and heard how much fun we were having doing it. And that, you know, and I guess like we're not like so far, we're not like Dan Aykroyd balls deep on this show. We're sort of maybe slightly more casual than that. So I think once she realized what the show was and how we're having fun and whatever, then she's like, Can I come on? And I had told her before, I was like, you're never coming on my show. Your S's are just too brutal. I can't deal with it. Oh, please. <laughs> so I actually, when she came on, I actually bought a better DSer for her, just to just for her S's. <laughs> but anyways, all right, let's get to this week's topic, Project Blue Book. <laughs> wow, you just ETA and then me. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm in a mood, just, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you're actually here to defend yourself, though. No, but actually, she's a really good contrib contribution, contributor to the show, because she actually is a real life physicist. So we can throw some science stuff at her once in a while and be like, hey, is this like real? Are they just making this up? Is this real science? I don't know. I'm not a scientist. So she can answer that stuff sometimes. And also it's good to have the female perspective as well, because, you know, you don't want all, all to be a boys club. You want it to be more people involved, have different perspectives, you know, so that's fun as well. So we get, you know, two, two main advantages for having her on the show is that she's a real-life scientist. No, I just think I'm awesome. And a real-life woman, and awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyways, that's, okay, quite the intro. Let's get into some case files. I didn't know where to start. There's 12,000 of the damn things in 1966, so I said, let's just start at the beginning. So I just started near the beginning looking at files. The first one I have is on the 7th of January, 1966, for, uh, and then it has a like a time is 07 slash 2130Z, which I'm assuming is Zulu time. And the, the file itself is three miles southwest of Georgetown, Alabama, on Highway 63. 
the description, this is the, the cover card. It's one object seen for one to two minutes, and it's a ground visual sighting. Now, the conclusion given is other psychological. When I'm looking through the files, now, many times when people are talking about Project Blue Book, they will talk about the percentage of files that are labeled as unknown. I forget that exact percentage. Let's say it's 10% or something. So a lot of people talk about the files as if 90% of them aren't really worth considering. It's the 10% that are the cream of the crop. Now, looking through these, I can tell you from my own personal experience and in my opinion that there is almost no difference between the files labeled as psychological or whatever or unknown. The ones marked unknown, it seems almost random which ones they mark unknown because quite a lot of the files that are marked as solved in some way or other whether they solve it as an aircraft or whatever, quite a lot of those, if you actually read the file instead of the summary card, the the conclusion does not match the witness statements at all. Also, a lot of times for the files, it'll say uh, conclusion unknown, but then it's similar. The whole case file is similar to another case where they come to the conclusion that it's psychological or Venus or an aircraft. And you're like, how are these two cases different that they have different conclusions. They're not. They're like the same case yeah, with different conclusions. Right. Sometimes the same case. Yeah. <laughs> with yeah. different. Exactly. Yeah. So when I look through these files, and if you listening to this decide to look through the files, which I would encourage you to do, um, don't look at the card and don't dismiss something if it says the conclusion is something mundane, like an aircraft or a meteor or whatever. Although, to be fair, many of the cases where it concludes their, their, uh, the sighting was due to a meteor does appear to actually be due to a meteor. That does appear to be the most reliable one as far as conclusions. But if you look at the, if it's got like a 25 page file about a meteor, it's probably not a meteor. It's probably something a little stranger than that. But, anyways, I just wanted to throw that out there because this one is concluded as psychological. And usually, so often, often if it says psychological and you read it, you're like, yeah, this does seem a little sus, you know, but sometimes <laughs> it's marked psychological and you're like, where did they get that from? So in this case, the summary card says, observer saw a round object with a diameter of 10 to 12 feet. Object had a ring or hoop extending out 8 to 10 inches around the center horizontal. It had a five to six foot hatch located on the bottom. Sounded like a turbine engine and the odor. It's well, so this is, it says odor, but it's a typo. I think they meant order. Um, and I just wanted to point out that there are typos in the file. And that's important because I've seen typos in government documents before. And it might sound like nitpicking, but uh, there are some words that if mistyped, an entire case could hinge upon. So it's important to understand that these files do have many typos if you're looking through them or you haven't seen government files in general before because you might see something that's like, that's crazy, but it's no, it's not crazy. It's just a typo sometimes. Or maybe it's a typo or whatever. It could go either way. Anyways, so the, um, so the, so the order, so, uh, oh, no, no. Okay, so the original was order. The typo was order and the, the word was odor. So the odor of sulfur or rotten eggs was present. 
Observer also stated that his watch stopped at 1527 CST. That's the detail that really caught my attention because there's a lot of cases where watches stop. Um, it's, it's a classic trope. If you're watching X-Files or a UFO movie, it shows up all the time in those movies, but it's not that common in UFO cases. You do see it on occasion, but it's not super common. It, it's a little unusual. So that's what really caught my attention about this particular case. He saw the object for one to two minutes while it hovered five feet above the ground and 20 feet from the observer. Then it accelerated and disappeared in a few seconds. The object also had a cone on top eight to 10 inches high with a blinking green light. So you're thinking, that's a little weird. And they went and interviewed him and thought he was crazy. Okay, fine. Further details from the file. It disappeared in a gradual climb to the north-northeast after the engine got louder, then left with a very rapid acceleration, and it disappeared due to distance. So it didn't go behind or above or whatever, it just faded away as it got further and further away. The witness was a civilian, age 18, student, and in the file it says that the character references said that he was very reliable. So what they do, we've talked about this before, but when they do Uh, what they would do investigating these is they would send somebody out and they would spend quite a lot of time asking around about the person. Is this person prone to telling tall tales? Do they lie a lot? Are they crazy or whatever? And they would get a lot of character references for the person. So if they say in the file that this person is very reliable, that means that they talked to a lot of people who said that he was an upstanding citizen who was not one to lie. And they look, they really look for, for evidence of this person being an unreliable witness. They spend more time on that than they do the actual case in some cases. So another quote from the file, uh, an on the spot survey of the area where the UFO hover did not reveal any evidence of heat, wind blast, etc. Also local RAPCON was queried as to any unusual radar sightings, negative results, The witness appeared to be reliable, which was confirmed by character witnesses, and his instructions on how to get to the rural area were very accurate. So in other words, this guy was, you know, one of these people who was very clear on what he said, you know. At the bottom of the fourth page of the file, at the top of the page it says three of three, but it's page four of the the fold three file, because the cover page is, you know, the first page. It says, note, Advance copy delivered to the DIA. And like, hmm, why would they send this to the DIA if it's just psychological, right? That's kind of weird. Why would the DIA want this at all? I'm thinking, maybe I want to send the DIA a FOIA request as to what they have on this particular case. It's really weird. But anyways, there's a memo on page five of the record and um, this is this is a memo from the 12th of January, 66, and it says, Received a call from Bookley Air Force Base, Alabama. FAA had nothing in the air below 1,800 feet. Navy did not have any aircraft in the area. Highway 63 is not heavily traveled. There is no house within one mile of the place where the boy saw the object. There was no dried grass on either side of the highway. The object went away from the sun. And that's what it says. And nothing in this file indicates why or how they concluded it was psychological. It just seems like 
Well, we hit our quota for unknowns this month, so we got to say that this is uh, this is psychological or whatever. Like, there's no indication. It's just completely made up. And it's interesting to me how thoroughly it seems that they investigated the case. Right. Going so far as to contact local military and see if there are any uh, crafts in the area. Yeah, and this is the Air Force, so that's why it said... Um, that's why I said the FAA, they contacted the FAA and the Navy because the Air Force already know it's already internal to them, but nobody knew what it was. Nobody had anything that could account for it. So it's basically an unknown. It's a real UFO. It's a weird thing. And you see the description, you see it has like hatches and things like that. It sounds like a man-made craft. And yet we don't have any craft that can account for it. So it's kind of weird, and it does. It did display um, movement characteristics that seem to defy the laws of physics. So it does it does line up with a lot of other UFO sightings around the time, and you know, around this time in 1966, there were a whole ton of sightings. And keep in mind that there was 12,000 in the file. That's just the ones that reported. We've talked about this on the show before. I mean, it could be for every sighting, there's 10 that weren't reported, you know? So who knows how many people saw stuff at the time. All right, Agent Ether, did you want me to do another one? You said you had four? I don't know. I have I have eight pages total of notes. Dear God. Well, you know, <laughs> usually, usually uh, Kruger's busy at work and ETA doesn't always have the time or inclination to do <laughs> a lot of notes. So and sometimes you're busy at work, so I have to assume that I'm going to have to do a lot of the talking, so I just do a lot of notes. Okay, well, I can go. Okay. I was looking for cases around Thanksgiving. Oh, okay. Because Thanksgiving is coming up, but there actually weren't a ton. And the ones that there were, it was around Thanksgiving, and they were very short. And then I stumbled across a case file, and it was 100 pages. And I was like, wow, that's that's good. That'll bring me through the episode. 100 pages to look through. Yeah, that's a big boy file right there. Yeah, and I was like, well, if it's 100 pages and there's so much information and there's multiple sightings, there's bound to be something out there on the interwebs. This can't be the only resource for this sighting. And yet it was. And I also found that very interesting. So I'd like to talk about it. Yeah, that's always surprising to me, too, when that's the case. Well, between November 6th and November 16th in 1957, there was actually a UFO wave. So we call that, what, a flap? Generally, it's well, it depends. Sometimes it's a wave, sometimes it's a flap, and I have not yet been able to figure out why which is used when. Well, there were a bunch of sightings <laughs> in Shiroi, uh, Japan, at the Air Force Base, and uh, also at the Johnson Air Force Base. And those two Air Force bases are about 26 miles apart. They were established after World War II. They're not operational anymore in that uh, we don't have bases specifically in those locations, although we do have bases in Japan. Uh, Shiroi became a training center for Japanese self-defense, and I actually couldn't find anything about the Johnson Air Force Base except that it existed and it was a historical base at some time. Well, sometimes, at least back in the day, they, they used to have, remember, radar was pretty primitive back then, and a lot of stuff was, they, they might have a little sub base just for the radar, you know? So sure. it, it might not have been like an actual air base. I've seen that before with different cases. You'd have 
instead of having one big base, they'd have smaller bases that were more specific to a certain thing, you know? Makes sense. I looked through these case files, though, and there were no witness statements or mention of the Johnson Air Force Base Hmm. beyond the title page, except there were tons of maps. And there were outlines uh, pinpointing the bases like latitude and longitude. There were detailed layouts of each building. They were thoroughly labeled. I mean, pages and pages and of both bases. Interesting. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And they weren't labeled with sightings. They were just the layouts of the buildings. Just the layouts. Mm -hmm. Weird. And some things were handwritten on the layouts like Jim... Marshall's office, front office, that sort of thing. Some uh, written, some handwriting on Mm. the layouts. Okay, interesting. Yeah. The first page of the document, it's cut off, but at the bottom it says, this document contains information affecting the national defense of the United States. Ooh. I know. So somebody's taking it, somebody's taking it seriously. The first few pages are actually a summary or overview Uh, Not necessarily case files, but a summary of a translation from, I'm going to try and say this newspaper, Shamuri Shimbun. Uh, Say what? I actually, so I didn't want to mispronounce it. So I went on the googly machine and I put it in and I, you know, I listened to the pronunciation and it just—it's <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Wow, it sounds very pretty," and like nothing I can pronounce. But it's a newspaper. It's been circulating since 1874, and in 2021, it was uh, circulating for seven million people. Hmm. So it was one of the largest circulating papers, I think, not just in Japan, but in the world. Yeah, that's a pretty good circulation, I think. It tends to be more conservative leaning. But still, been around a long time. So I think it's interesting that it's conservative-leaning, and yet they still had these interviews with all these witnesses in regards to this this UFO flap back in 1957. Yeah. Well, hey, man, everybody likes UFOs, even the conservatives, right? Yeah. (laughs) The liberals, the moderates, the centrists, the uh, libertarians, I don't know who else is there, the Green Party, whatever. They all like them. So this is a sad story. I'm getting older, and in order to read, I have to alternate between taking my glasses on, taking them off, and putting them on. I think I need to just go get reading glasses. It's, <laughs> it's terrible. I'm like, I think I need well, them. It's time. To be fair, these files are not easy to read. That's true. That's true. Thank <laughs> you for coming to my defense. Yeah. All right. So I'm looking at a file here. It's the first page of the 100 pages. And it says that they interviewed 14 individuals, eight of which were UF, let's see, eight of which were U.S. Air Force personnel, and three which were Japanese nationals. And they also said there were three people they couldn't interview because they had the flu. What? Yeah, and I thought that was kind of interesting. I think they didn't have the flu. I think it was more like... I'm not talking about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too sick to talk about this. But then they go and they list the people, the civilians that have the flu. Like Weird. it's not redacted. Like the three civilians are just in there with uh with all their information. So Yeah, quite there a you lot go. of the, Yeah, we've talked about that before. Like how some some stuff is redacted 
quite a lot is not. All right. So one of the people interviewed was Sergeant Laybourne. And I found it interesting. He actually had a previous experience in Thanksgiving of 1951. He was driving his car with his wife uh, somewhere between Vacaville and Auburn, California, which is actually really close to us. Hey, I know where that is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was near Travis Air Force Base. Okay. When he saw something. It doesn't really describe what. He just says that he he had sighted something around Thanksgiving. So, unfortunately, it does not go into detail. Hmm. That, that's all they give, huh? Yeah, no details. I, I wonder if there's a separate file on that. I looked, you know, I looked for... A lot of things. I did not see a separate file, but hmm. maybe I should look harder. <laughs> Interesting. Well, we know for a fact that there was a whole separate reporting arm of the military for UFOs outside of Project Blue Book. So maybe he submitted it to that. It doesn't necessarily say he submitted it in as much as he said he had this experience. Hmm. So okay. I don't think he necessarily reported it. I think he was sharing Oh, I see. In the, uh, you know, when they asked him in the interview Hmm. that he had a similar experience. So other people who they interviewed were a, oh, geez, (laughs) glasses off. Mr. Uh, Can you edit that? Just bloop, flag it. I guess. What do you want me to edit out? Just that part. Um. You, you'll know. Just click the edit. <laughs> sure. I'll edit, I'll edit that right out. Put the flag on. <laughs> you're so mean. No, what are you talking I don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to edit that out. All right. I'm going to skip names is what I'm going to do because <laughs> I can't pronounce them. So there was a student and they give his address in Tokyo. And on November 10th at um, 5.55, He was out in the street, and he saw a green light and a reddish fireball flying over the Haneda Airport for a few seconds. It finally exploded, emitting a shower of sparks, but there was no sound. Hmm. That's weird. Yeah, it was. And then, same date, November 10th, there was an employee at Tomoto Camera Works, and he saw something very similar, flying in a southeasternly direction with a pale tail light. On the same day, we have a Mrs. Takahara, and around the same time, she was, uh, let's see, on a bus, and she saw an egg flying in the southwesternly direction, leaving a red tail until it fell in pieces like a star Grapes splitting silently. That's what it says. Yeah. An egg. An egg. Yeah. She describes it as an egg. So that's a little different than the other descriptions. But so far we have that it had a tail. Several of the witnesses described it as being green and several described it as exploding. Yeah. So we have multiple independent witnesses there. We do. And one witness, the next witness, says the size was that of a closed fist. So he's looking up in the sky, and it's about the size of a closed fist. It was right below the horizon where Venus was. It was an intense blue-white light. It emitted sparks, and then it exploded. 
into three pieces and disappeared, and the explosion was not heard. Huh. Apparently, there were a ton of telephone calls made to the Tokyo Astronomical Observatory. They said that uh, various people were reporting flying objects. The time of the observations were, you know, very similar. And they concluded that maybe it was a meteor, which sounds reasonable, right? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's reasonable. But the problem I have with this is I'm going to go on to talk about other sightings on different days. And they can't all be meteors. Even even that one doesn't sound like a meteor, to be honest. I mean, I guess if you cherry pick some of the details, but if you actually listen to what the witnesses are reporting, does not sound like a meteor to me. So I also have farmers, some students, and a member of the Nagoya District Astronomical Observatory who all saw a fireball leaving a tail about two meters long. So tons of witnesses saying the... Now by two meters, do you mean two meters in the sky? I think, yeah, two meters in the sky. Or do they mean like literally two meters? No, no, I think it's two meters Two meters in the sky, that's a pretty big trail. That's going to be huge. Now, this is interesting. Here, it says there were photos. Somebody took photos and sent them in to the Japan Flying Saucer Research Society representative, Kenichi. Now, I I looked around, but of course, I could not find these photos. Oh, and then it talks about, I was going to ask you about this. It talks about angel hair. Have you heard of this phenomena? Oh, yeah. So I am not familiar. A lot of the times when I'm researching something, it's for the first time because I wasn't a big UFO buff before I started doing the show. So everything's new to me. So these files here where they transition from the interviews to this, what I'm talking about now, the subject, there's missing data. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, we're talking about these people, we're looking at the fact that it could be a meteor, and then suddenly it's talking about glass fibers falling from the sky. And it describes it as tinsel, it's disintegrating, and they call it angel hair. So yeah. tell me about this angel hair. So I don't know a ton about it, I haven't really done the deep dive, but there have been reports from various places in the world of this sort of... It generally described as like a, a cobweb or spiderweb like material and it will fall and like you said disintegrate um, and there have been cases where there have been natural causes for this but there have been other cases where it's hard to as- to you know ascribe it or whatever to a natural phenomenon we it's sort of a mystery but I, I'm not super knowledgeable about it but I have heard of it before okay and it, all it's, right Often associated with, you know, things like UFOs or other strange sightings, perhaps supernatural. Some people think it literally is coming from the heavens. Um, there's, I mean, there's all sorts of theories around it. I read it that some people think it's like a byproduct right, of, of UFO activity. Yeah, or other types of activity, like paranormal activity. So then this supplemental form is coming to an end. And they're reaching a conclusion here. And it says that the newspaper is conservative, slightly rightish, but they write news to be sensational, to get circulation. And so you can't really take it seriously because it's written primarily 
to appeal to the population, not to actually give correct news. Okay. So that, that's something specific to that time in Japan. Well, I feel like it's an excuse, though. They're saying these, yeah. these eyewitnesses, these stories are being sensationalized because that's the way newspapers operate. Problem? What is that? Peter. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so, yeah. So I feel like it's more of an excuse rather than investigating these statements. They're just coming to this conclusion. It's an easy conclusion. Yeah. But it doesn't explain the sightings. Right. Yeah, that is a convenient excuse. But it does remind me also of, I think it was in the 1800s in America, there were certain, like, even prominent newspapers would publish stories that would be far-fetched, but it would be understood by people reading it that it was a make-believe story. Like, it was people just knew that it was a thing. But on the other hand, if we have a file in Project Blue Book with like actual witnesses and stuff, that sort of makes me think that might not be the case in this case. So other than this specific event, which a lot of the government and the Astronomical Society in Japan concluded was a meteor, we also have other sightings. And they're described to us in the U.S. Air Force technical information sheets. So it starts off with a summary and the name is redacted. The date is November 15th, 1957. And it was actually really hard to read. It was very light and it's in cursive handwriting, but I managed to translate most of it, I think. Yeah, it's, it's in English, <laughs> but by translate, she means it is in cursive and it is really Ooh, hard to read. <laughs> it was. So this person, whoever they may be, sounds like they were at the top of the food chain. Somebody in command. And I think you'll be able to hear that in when I read the statement and understand what I'm saying. So at approximately 7.45 on November 8th, 1957, this person was informed by two other people. And I'm not familiar with military terms A slash C and CQ. I'm assuming those are specific ranks. Um, what was that again? So one of them before the name, it was A slash C. Okay. And the other one before the name, it was CQ. CQ and AC. Yeah, it's. Hmm. I just know it's going to stand for some sort of like corporal lieutenant or something like airman, that. Airman corporal uh, and CQ. I don't know. I well, have, it's also hard to read. So they could, yeah. And I could not make out the names. But anyways, they came into his office to tell him that there was a large object like a searchlight in the sky that was moving around. And so he went out with someone else. So he drags whoever's in his office with him and they all go out and they're looking at this object and they look up at it for uh, about 10 minutes. He goes back in his office, doesn't say why, comes back out and it's moving and he's noticing it move. So I think it's moving in one direction, not zigzagging around. And the reason I think this is because he starts to give um, he starts to give descriptions of the movement in terms of this sort of in terms of this specific way. He writes, for example, T601 to T604. And it took me a couple minutes, but I had been looking at the maps and the layouts of the bases, and I realized he is noting the position and movement 
of the object based on the buildings. Oh, that really? That he's looking at. That's what I think it is. Mm-hmm. So I got all excited because I figured <laughs> I figured that <laughs> out. I was like, oh. So in the period, you could calculate, if you had more information, I think, how fast the object was moving based on how far apart the buildings were. So he kept coming out and going back in every 10 minutes, recording the movement. And then he said either he left and did not return or the object left and did not return. It wasn't clear. Hmm. So we have a diamond in the discord chat has helped us out here. He says, what does AC mean in military? And it says, um, active component, active corporal. Uh, this says component. Um, and it says CQ stands for change of quarters. Huh. So I'm not sure if that applies to this particular statement. I don't know. I don't know. It's like I said, it's very hard to read. It is. She asked me to help her earlier and I was like, I don't, I I can't tell. (laughs) I couldn't, I couldn't make it out any better than she can. For example, here's a name with a designation and it's A slash three C and it looks like Brown and then a series of numbers, which might be his serviceman numbers, his unit number. I don't know. Uh, a three C might be Airman Third Class. Mm, look at you. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what I would guess for that one. Yeah, that makes sense since we're talking about Air Force bases. Oh, there's also um, man, they're they're <laughs> Mr. Punk says air conditioning control quality. And then here's <laughs> okay, so uh, CQ or oh, charge of quarters is. A tasked duty in which a United States Armed Forces service member is to guard the front entrance of the barracks. Oh. Well, that makes sense that he would go and report something then to so his higher up. That would be like the watchman, basically. Yeah. Okay. Very hey, cool. good find there, Diamond. Awesome. Thank you for the help. Yeah. Yes. So that's that's what I have for this specific... Hold on. I'm dropping my papers because I have so many. That's what I have for this specific information sheet. I also have technical information sheets, which are the standard forms that people fill out that we've talked about before when they have a sighting where it's a series of questions. Yeah. And they are standardized to try and, I think, normalize and keep track of the different variables when it comes to UFO sightings. Yeah, this questionnaire is actually really, really good. It's designed specifically to get somebody who's just an average observer to get them to give you like scientific data, you know, it's a really good questionnaire, like really, really good. We should post a copy of it somewhere so people yeah. can see what we mean. But hey, people yes. could fill out their own Blue Book files. <gasps> that would be so much fun. We should do that. That would be so cool. <laughs> and they could send them to the show, or I don't know where you would send them. There's no more Project Blue Book, but it's a really good questionnaire, and that would be so much fun. Yeah. It's it's such a good questionnaire that I'd say it's still very usable these days, even though it's so many years later. So this questionnaire, like the rest of the file, is is hard to read, but I think I got the pertinent information from it. So this was a sighting that occurred on November 7th, same year, 1957. It was about 6.30 p.m. And this was at the Japanese Air Force Base, Shiroi. <clears throat> I paused because I think... I think they write down the building number here where they're at, but it's hard to see. I think it says APO 73. So I think that's actually somewhere on the base. He observed this for two hours total, and this was in the complete dark. There was apparently no trace of daylight. Looking at the next page, 
He described it as a white, thin rod hmm. that was like a bright star. And then if, if ETA was here, he would say... Oh, gosh, he really <laughs> he would. would. say, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> so there was bright moonlight, but the object was still brighter than the background of the sky. It changed in brightness. It seemed to stand still at times, and it flickered and pulsated. Hmm. Moving on to the next page, Department Information... It said that, oh, he was outside and he just happened to look up and he saw the object in the southwest. He then draws a pretty picture of where he thinks he saw. But this, to me, is interesting. The question basically is to compare the size of the object in the sky to an object. So you have choices like a nickel or a quarter or a grapefruit or a basketball. And he has that it was the size of a silver dollar. Wow. So it was big. At arm's length. At arm's length. That's huge. Yeah, it certainly isn't a star. (laughs) No. (laughs) And he described it as like a a car headlight. Huh. So that that I thought was the most interesting part of the of the whole report of his statement. Yeah. Was the size of the object. That is that would be massive, something in the sky that big. So he's out there. Hanging out, happens to look up, sees this really bright, massive object. Hmm. Let's see. Oh, it continues. Uh, Let's see. It looks like he filed the report on the same day. So that was interesting. So he saw it and he went and reported it right away. And they probably had him fill out this form because he was on the Air Force Base. Yeah, I remember (laughs) this is back in the day when at some point the government actually said, please send us your UFO reports, you know, until they got so many, they're like, okay, stop. You can stop now. We've got enough. (laughs) Got enough to last us forever. We don't need any more UFO reports. And on this page, it actually says he was there with two other witnesses. Hmm. So he didn't see it by himself. Okay. Let's see. And then he draws where he was relative to the object. And that's the end of his observation, his observational report. On the same day, we have a second report. Okay. So same day, around 7 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the evening. And again, it describes the place as PMO Shiroi Air Force Base. So I don't know what the PMO is. Maybe it's the building. Maybe it's something else. He observed it for five minutes. Let's see. Switching the page. There was no moonlight it was about a block away. So if he looked up in the sky, he estimated it was it was a block away. That's pretty close. Pretty close, yeah. That's too close. I like my US I like my <laughs> UFOs to be very far away. <laughs> Preferably in this in space and you're just seeing a reflection. He said it made no sound and it had a color like a star. It was above the dining hall and disappeared towards the direction of where the transmitters were transmitter antenna. So I guess there was some sort of transmitter antenna on base. Yeah, I'm sure all bases have them. And it disappeared over in in that direction. So it was moving, obviously. Mm. Let's see. And then I think the rest of the pages are missing. Oh, no. I know. But then there's other sightings, too. There's a sighting on November 6th. But again, most of the pages are missing. 
And then I found, I was looking just for general information that wasn't on the Air Force bases, but that was just in Japan around the same time. Because sometimes they show up in Project Blue Book, even though it's supposed to be mostly for the United States. Mm -hmm. It'll list uh, sightings. So I found November 6th, a sighting in the Air Force Base, Shiro Air Force Base, and it just has the conclusion as a meteor. So it's like kind of like a line item. It has the dates. It has every place in the world that they have a case file for and the conclusion. So date, location, conclusion, like line items. So I just went through for November and I looked for Japan. So there's a sighting on November 6th. They say it's a meteor. November 7th, Venus. And November 10th, insufficient data. Oh, I thought you were going to see a weather balloon. <laughs> no, and I didn't see any case files here for November 10th, and that was at the Air Force Base. So uh -huh. there were more sightings yeah. that are represented here in what I happen to have shared. Well, I want, so I've looking through these files before, I've seen files like that I've been looking for, it'll just be stuck halfway through a completely different case. You'll just find what you're looking for. You're like, well, this is what I was looking for, but it's in a, it's filed under a completely different case file. Or you'll see files where there are certain pages that are just repeated or they're out of order or they're in reverse order or whatever. The files are in a very bad state of organization. And I did read, I think it was in Rupert's book or whatever, that they did get some pages or files were damaged over the years, which I'm sure was the case even after he was there. So it's unfortunate, but but on the other hand, the files that are the pages that are missing from your file could be there. They just could be in a different year, a different month, a different something. Yeah, that's that's actually true. Well, at first I thought they were duplicates because they had the same dates. November 7th, there were a lot of sightings. And I was like, oh, these are duplicates. I've already printed them out. But no, they were separate reports yeah. of different sightings from different people. Okay. I thought that was interesting. So here next, I have the Air Intelligence Evaluation Record. And it's dated November 13th by one Captain J.A. Calhoun. And I'm not quite sure what it's supposed to be a report about. It just says this report is too general. I have <laughs> no idea what that means. It says it does not contain sufficient data, so he can't draw a conclusion. I'm like, well, that's not very helpful. That's pretty typical of a lot of these. However, he says that they should exhaust all air efforts to identify these UFOs because they could be a threat. Hmm. He says that uh, he couldn't obtain all the data. And let's see. And he says there's always a considerable amount of air traffic crisscrossing Japan. So he thinks that might be explaining a lot of it. He says he's suspicious and thinks most of these sightings are actually aircraft, especially he says if it's reported by locals. What? <laughs> oh, yeah, these locals in Japan have never seen an airplane before, so... <laughs> and I like this one, too. The reporting of the colored light streaming across the sky of Tokyo has little value. Although, admittedly, it could have been a meteorite. Uh, it cannot be... Oh, I can't read it. We must go ahead and rely on the overseas facilities reporting the sightings. Hmm. So, I don't know. It's just such a generic report 
I'm not sure why it even exists or yeah. what the military would do with it. Hmm. You know, it basically just says, well, I don't know, meteorites, aircraft, yeah. <laughs> we should investigate, I guess. Don't trust the locals. Hmm. Weird. Seems, yeah, it seemed kind of weird to me. Sometimes on these files, you'll see like weird little things on there, either handwritten or a note that catches your attention. Like that one I said earlier that it was psychological and yet they sent it to the DIA. You're like, that's weird. It's not every file that you see a note that says it was sent to the DIA. So I was like, that's really weird. So I don't know if there's some details on the files like that that you might, that you might see. All right, let me put my glasses back on. I think mostly I needed them uh, off because, like you said, the files from Project Blue Book are so hard to read. Some of them are pretty good. Some of them are like faded looking, and it's really quite difficult to read them. But now here's my own notes that I typed out. So okay, <laughs> on a nice bright white background. Um, so there were just a couple more case files that were out there, and I actually found them not on Fold 3, but in the Wayback Machine. Oh, in, sweet. In like an archive. They they weren't like Fold 3. They weren't detailed. They were only a few pages. I'm not sure where they came from, but they looked official. They looked like the documents and papers you see on Fold 3. I think they were legit. Okay. Is what I'm saying. So one of them was on November 14th. From 6.30 to 6.41, someone observed a white object in the distance that then faded from view. Now, this was actually an air policeman. He was taking tickets from servicemen who were boarding a bus, and apparently they were also commenting on it. He said it appeared to be a star, but it did not behave like a star. So the conclusion that officials would reach is, of course, it was Venus. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course it was Venus, but... Here's my argument. It was not behaving like a star. He doesn't elaborate, but that means something. He saw something that triggered an emotion or a reaction so yeah. strong that he felt he needed to go and report it and file a report right away. Yeah. And this, I'm always skeptical of these Venus explanations because you have an adult who's seen stars in this night sky every night of their life. The stars are always there. And yet for this one night, for whatever reason, you know, Venus normally, if you can see it and it's bright, it looks like a star, a very bright star, but you, you can't look at it and be like, okay, that's a planet unless you know your stuff. It just looks like a bright star. Right. So why would you go outside and be like, you know, I've been outside every other night of my life and I've seen the stars, but this night... In particular, I'm going to look up at the stars and freak out on this one particular one. You right. Know? Like, how was it different? Was it flickering more than you would expect? Yeah. Was it, you know, brighter than you would expect? Like, what exactly? How was it different? Yeah, exactly. Let's take a break here. Oh, okay. Agent Ether has to turn off her phone alarm, which is unfortunately going to show up in the recording so i'm going to have to apologize for that ahead of time <laughs> hopefully it's not too annoying but we're going to take a, a slight pause she has to go give our our cryptids one of our cryptid needs medication uh twice a day because he has uh he has seizures so we got to give him seizure medication to keep the poor little guy safe but that's so she's going to go do that right now she gets the morning shift i get no i get the morning shift she gets the evening shift so that we both remember to do it. So we sort of join forces on that. 
And uh, yeah, and he hasn't had a seizure seizure for a long time since we've been giving him his medication. So it all works out. All right, Agent Ether is back. Uh, what's what's right. cooking, Agent Ether? Good luck in your edits there. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, so we had uh, actually Mr. Ponk found for us uh, for PMO. He says a project project management office is a department within an organization that standardizes and documents the best project management techniques. The PMO sets the scopes for projects, trains staff, and tracks the metrics for all processes, and then goes on and on and on. Or prime minister's office. I don't think it's the prime minister's office. I would find that unlikely, yeah. (laughs) Actually, that's pretty close to wrapping it up. There's just one more case file I found, and it was in uh, Friday, November 7th or 8th. They weren't clear. That's what they wrote on the case file. I'm sure I could go back in time and look up that actual date and figure out which one it was since they say it was on a Friday. But it happened at 6 p.m. And it was very similar to the story of November 14th where someone saw a bright object in the distance and basically said it wasn't a star. It was something, but it wasn't a star. Yeah. And I guess if it, if it was moving in a, in a strange, erratic way and they say, how did it move? And you're like, I'm not really sure how it moved, but it wasn't a star, you know? I guess maybe it would make sense if you look at it that way. Yeah, yeah, maybe. So I just thought this was a really interesting case. I was really surprised that there wasn't any information on it outside of Fold 3, Mm. considering how many people saw it, how many sightings there were, Yeah, the fact that it was in a major newspaper. Well, and if you have many sight, if you have a number of witnesses, there are probably people who didn't report it who also saw it so you think there'd be just more evidence around of it you know? yeah exactly i like how the uh, government ended up drawing multiple conclusions too they had yeah. to explain <laughs> each sighting differently they're you know on this date it must have been this on this date it must have been that it just so happens that all of these things coincided and all of these sightings happened within this this you know period yeah within 10 days in november Agent Redacted's over there trying to rile up <laughs> rile up the cryptids. Why? Knock it off, Agent Redacted. <laughs> I could I could see your reflection in the TV. You're not fooling anybody. <laughs> All right. Sorry, I just wanted to tell him to knock it off. So is that what you got for us, Agent yeah, Ether? That's that's what I got on the pages and notes. That was a pretty good case. You were worried it wouldn't be enough material. But that was pretty good. That was a really good case that I had never heard of. And I, it has my favorite thing is multiple independent witnesses because that's like that's better than anything, really. You have people who probably had no chance to corroborate ahead of time, all reporting the same or similar things. So we know that something unusual happened, although it doesn't necessarily tell us what. That means I get to name it. Okay. I'm just, you know, I'm going to call it the Shiroi UFO flap of 1957. Oh, that's such uh, an original name. <laughs> okay, then I will call it the Agent Ether Flap. Okay, good. The of Agent, 1957. Although there's many ways you can interpret that, but <laughs> I'm sure people will assume it's a UFO. <laughs> okay, so before we move on, hit the edit button there for our Patreon subscribers. Before we move on, 
I'd like to just mention that if you have some cryptocurrency that needs to be protected in these uncertain times of cryptocurrency market crashes and whatever, don't keep your stuff on an exchange. You know, as you may know, if you followed the news or if you actually own some cryptocurrency, you may have noticed that one of the foremost exchanges just collapsed. And it seems to be bringing other stuff down with it. And uh, just the other day, somebody hacked $600 million from them, you know, so their customers are probably not getting all their stuff back. So anyways, don't keep your crypto on an exchange. Get yourself a good hardware wallet, a good cold wallet that you can store it. And one of those that I think is really good is the Ledger Wallet. So if you got some cryptocurrency you'd like to store, check out the link in the description for a Ledger Wallet. All right, now let's get back to the show. Or you can just buy it on PayPal. Buy what? Cryptocurrency. Apparently, on yeah. On PayPal. I was thinking actually, so I used to buy lotto tickets for my girlfriends around the holidays. You know, mm. it's it's easy, it's fun, like scratchers. Yeah. Scratchers and Powerball and what have you. And then I was like, you know, I could buy them crypto through PayPal. Yeah. But don't get Bitcoin though. Why not? Well, because I think that Bitcoin is... You know, there was a time when it was like you could get it for like a penny per Bitcoin and it's gone up to like, you know, $20,000. But those the days of it going from like $20,000 to like $20 million, I don't think that's going to happen anymore. So it's going to go up or down, but not by as much as it has been. Probably it's going to stabilize a little bit in the long term. So instead, you want to get them some some of these really weird altcoins, you know, get them like, I don't know, get them some Dogecoin, you know. Something like that, that it's like the lottery because most of those coins end up becoming worthless or they already are worthless. But once in a great while, one of them does become valuable, at least temporarily, before becoming worthless again. So it's kind of like playing the lottery, you know? You could gift them some NFTs too. Yeah, get them five bucks over here. I'm going to look up anybody interested. You can go to CoinMarketCap. CoinMarketCap cap and that lists pretty much all the cryptocurrencies so let's go to coin market cap and you can look at the cryptocurrencies by um i don't know can you search them you can search them you can list them based unicorn let's see if there's a unicorn there's a unicorn yeah you can you can search them based on like the market cap or the price or you can search them based on you know any a couple of different criteria so let's go to um, it, it's listing them in order. I think it's listing them in order of market cap. Let's see. Yeah. Market caps descending. So let's look at, um, I don't know, pick a number above 100. 101. 101. Oh, that's, that's fun. Okay. So, so coin number 101 is holo coin, H O L O. The, the ticker or short symbol, I guess is H O T. Uh, the current price is point zero zero one six one four dollars, <laughs> and uh, and the market cap is actually two hundred seventy nine thousand dollars. No, is that two hundred seventy nine million dollars? My goodness, that's a lot. No way, that's crazy. <laughs> lies, I tell you, lies. That's a lot. This market cap can be deceptive, but that's a, a conversation for for another to- t- uh, time. Then there's, oh, Bitcoin gold is all the way down to number 104. So I guess in the top 100, we're still got some prominent coins. 
No, no. So what, what I'm talking about is not something with such a high market cap because money's already been put into those. Let's see. I'm going to go to dot, dot, dot. Let's see. Go to page six. Go down a little bit. Let's talk about coin. You too can invest your life savings and watch it all go to ruin. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to coin number 515. GMT token. <laughs> okay. This one has a... um. A bit of a small, that's still a fairly large market cap, though. Let's see where we go. Do they all have symbols? Is there some sort of, Um, you know? They, most of them do, yeah. Here, does this one, can I take a peek? Uh, You can come over and take a look, yeah. Here, this is still too much money. I'm going, I'm going, uh, let's go to page eight here. Oh my gosh, there's so many cryptocurrencies. (laughs) Okay, so let's see here. Now, okay, now we're at some smaller market caps. These are only in like the 9 million kind of range. So let's pick something with, it's under 10 million now, I guess. So let's pick coin number 758. Uh, <laughs> this is Y key chain, the WICC. It's uh, $0.0394 per coin, $8 million market cap. And then it lists some other particulars of the coin. And this coin could spike someday randomly. You don't know. It's possible. Some others in this area are Bucks Token, Rfox. Oh, here's Lossless Coin. <laughs> That's why yeah, Lossless Coin. That's what I wanted. Some Lossless Coin. It's a perfect idea. Here's Whale Coin. Whale Whale Coin is worth only seven million dollars total. So yeah. Anyways, that's still a lot of money. That boggles my mind that enough people have invested in these altcoins that well, there's money in them. Well, here's the thing about market cap. Market cap is very deceptive. Okay, so let's say hypothetically that I make a coin and I issue a million tokens. Okay, now the first token that I issue or that I sell sells for a dollar, right? Now let's say I sell ten more tokens. So I've sold like 11 tokens total and I've sold them. They got a little bit more. So let's say the last one I sold went for $2 million or for $2, right? So the last sale was $2. So the market cap is now going to be $2 million. I see. But I've only sold like, let's say $20 worth of coins. You see what I'm saying? That's silly. So the market cap could be $20 million and yet only $50 of coins have sold. So that market cap is not necessarily a useless metric, but it can be very, very deceptive. It's You have to combine it with some other metrics like volume and some other stuff to get an actual, to get the whole picture of what's going on. Any, any individual data point by itself is more or less worthless when you're talking about this kind of stuff. So it can, that doesn't mean that people have put $8 million or $7 million into this coin. That just means that there's, you know, 9 million coins out there or whatever. And then, you know, so it can be very deceptive, but all right. Like well, you said, it's a lottery. Yeah. It, it, anyways, go, go buy yourself, your friend, some King Dag coin. <laughs> Maybe it'll be worth something at some point. There's, you, you can Google it. You can do a search for whatever, whatever coin you want. And chances are somebody's come up with a coin of that idea, you know, already. Although I did find a coin that nobody had made yet that it was I was surprised that I might actually issue my own coin just for fun and give it out to our listeners <laughs> <laughs> for free. You too can own this own this coin. I'm not going to say what it is cuz then somebody else will do it <laughs> and make my own worthless coin. All right, let's get back to Project Blue Book. That was quite the diversion there. But I feel like since Agent ETA is not here, I have to do the the tangents, you know. 
That's his job is to do the tangents. All right. Next up, we have a file from uh, it's the the title or the most of them in um, Fold Three. It'll give like often it'll give like the location or whatever is like the name of the thing. It's filed under location or whatever. So this one is twenty six point fifty eight North, one fifty four point forty six East in the Pacific, and it was on the eleventh of January, nineteen sixty six. It was military witnesses, and it was one object. It was a three minute total observation and listed as a ground visual sighting. The course was to the southeast, and the location was the Pacific Ocean. This is just from the title card, or the, the cover card that summarizes everything. The conclusion? What do you, any guesses, Agent Ether? Ooh, um, I'm going to guess aircraft. No. Uh, close, though. Satellite decay of the Cosmos 53 satellite. Oh. Now, that sounds like, okay, that would look really weird, but... This is a three-minute observation. Would a satellite decaying in the atmosphere last for three minutes? That sounds doubtful to me, but maybe. I don't know. Let's give it. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's look at the summary and all the particulars. So the brief summary of the on the on the title or on the cover card or whatever is: object was described as being cigar-shaped, glowing with a bright light at its head, a glowing body with a duller light aft, and a long fiery tail. Its flight path was described as coming from the horizon on the starboard beam. It approached to within one mile at a height of 400 feet, then altered course to a position off the starboard quarter where it appeared to hover for approximately 30 seconds, then went to the port quarter and gradually disappeared. So yeah, that sounds like a satellite decaying, (laughs) right? (laughs) And then it says, the ship was steering at 257 degrees gyro, 258 degrees north. So the ship was maneuvering during part of this sighting. And it says that in the, in the card as if that, so if you have a stationary object, but the ship is turning, then that could make the object look like it's turning, especially when you're out at sea at night and you have no reference point whatsoever and you might not know that the ship is turning, that might make the object look like it's going around the ship when in fact the object is stationary and the ship is turning, right? So that's kind of what they're trying to say on the on the title card. No, it was just a satellite decaying. The ship was turning, giving it the illusion or whatever. But let's look a little bit further into this and we can say if whether or not we believe that based on further information. So page two, is a communication from, says, from Commander of U.S. Naval Defense Forces, Eastern Pacific, to Commander ATIC, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Dayton, Ohio. The reason I notated that is because this was not just some sergeant reporting this. This was the commander of the U.S. Naval Defense Forces of the Eastern Pacific. This is a guy with a big swing and dick as agent <laughs> <laughs> that does sound like something he would say. Agent ETA would say. Uh, again, I'm trying to represent him because he's not here. No, but this is like a very important person. And these people, they don't just report frivolous stuff, right? They they have careers to worry about. They have the defense of our nation to worry about. They don't bother reporting meteors and comet fragments or whatever, right? So I thought that was interesting that that was who was, you know, one of the people involved in this anyways. So on here he has... At 11-12-00-Z, which I'm assuming that's some sort of Zulu, but there's a couple of extra digits there, um, position 26-58 north, 154-46 east, watch sighted 200-foot cigar-shaped silent UFO at 400-foot height. 
approached one mile starboard beam, then hovered starboard quarter, then to port quarter and away. Visible three minutes. Executed Williamson's search for possible downplane one hour. Phenomenon inexplicable. Airmail ma- air witness report signed master. So the I looked it up. The Williamson uh, maneuver is basically a U-turn for a ship. If a ship wants to make a U-turn, they do it in a very specific way, and they call that a Williamson maneuver, I guess. So at the bottom of the page is like a handwritten note about some kind of sat- satellite decay. It's very faint and hard to read, but it's about a satellite decay and maybe about the position of that de- of that satellite. The next page appears to be um, a witnessed account of the event, and it, it it's very, very sad that this is un- illegible. Like, it's very hard to read. You can read words here and there, but you cannot read the whole thing. And I think this is the main witness statement. And I just sort of really bummed out that you can't read this because this is where all the meat is. The specific witness statement, not the summary, but the witness statement, that's the important thing. And we have multiple witnesses for this one, three witnesses, I think. But that page is is not readable, really, unfortunately. But the next page, we have a statement of Glenn G. Petrie, P-E-T-R-Y-E, who's the master, I guess like the supervisor. His statement is, he was in the bunk around 2200 when he heard the clatter of feet on the bridge grating over him. The phone rang and Mr. Anderson, third mate, reported what appeared to be a plane, a fire, on the port quarter. He ran to the bridge but didn't see anything. Uh, the witness ran to the bridge but didn't see anything. So the the reason this is important is because you have people reporting a plane that they th- it looks like maybe a plane that's on fire or crashing. So in other words, they're seeing the object before the ship makes its maneuver before it makes its Williamson turn. So they see something that they think might be a downed ship in the, in the distance. So then they turn the ship around to go look for it. So the timing here is critical to the story. So they didn't see the object while the ship was turning. So the the summary page is misrepresenting what the witnesses said, right? So we have a witness here who says that they saw or they heard um, people running around and stuff reacting to what they were seeing before the ship turned around. Very, very important detail here, okay? Um, At 2201, the ship started to execute a Williamson turn. The bow lookout was doubled and a search was made using a searchlight. The witnesses real the witness writing this realized that during the search that he had heard no sound such as a plane would have made. So he he was in his bunk and he was like, okay, there's a bunch of people running around being crazy. And then it says, okay, let's turn around and look for a crashed plane. But then he's like, there was no crashed plane. If it was close enough for them to look for, you would have heard the sound of a plane. He didn't hear any plane sounds. He didn't hear anything. It was completely silent. That's kind of a strange detail. He asked somebody else who had seen the object, um, and that person said that the object had maneuvered 180 degrees around the ship without making any sound. And they looked for the thing, and at about 2258, the ship made another U-turn and resumed the original course, continuing the search. At 2300, the witness writing the the master, Glenn, uh, took statements from each of the witnesses. Uh, Mr. Anderson uh, and uh, R. 
Clunch and a J Fachum, F A C H M, Fachum. And he said, The statements were taken individually and I did not seek to make them agree. Now I'm guessing those statements are on the page that is illegible, unfortunately. The next page is some drawings of the ship's position and the UFO. And it's got some little notes and handwritten stuff on there. The final page is mostly blank with a big blocky stamp that it's stamped priority on the page. There's some faint writing on the page that's really hard to make out. But in one spot, it appears that a hundred foot cigar shape is handwritten. And there's a few other things like something, um, about priority, but I can't really make it out, or something above priority, but I can't really make out what it says. In another place, there's a word that's underlined. It might be rain or uh, pan or Paul or whatever. I can't, it's really hard to see, tell what it says, but there's some handwritten stuff on that page. And if this was not anything, it was just a satellite entry, then why would it have priority? I don't know. It's sort of one of these things where the conclusion doesn't match the case file. And that's, you know, like I said at the beginning, it's a good idea to read through these case files, not necessarily rely on what the, the cover page says. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's definitely true. Yeah. Let's see. how well, Where are we at here? We're at 120. Oh, 120. Wow. A little bit of that is going to be cut out. <laughs> Just a little. Maybe I'll do one more. Yeah, maybe I'll do one more here. So the next file I have notes on is um, uh, 4204 North, 7356 West, Sagittarius, New York, or S-A-U-G-E-R-T-I-E-S. That's not Sagittarius, that's Sagittarius. How would you say that, Agent Ether? I wouldn't. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Somewhere in New York on the 16th of January, this one had civilian witnesses and it was one large object and three smaller objects saw for one hour and 30 minutes. The witnesses described it as a white football-shaped object, one large object and possibly three smaller objects moving uh, out of the larger object and off to the west. It was sighted at a 30-degree elevation in the northwest and disappeared to the west by fading from sight. Now, the conclusion is Jupiter, and at first, this sounds somewhat reasonable, but, you know, because Jupiter has moons that are sort of visible, although I'm not sure if the moons of Jupiter are visible to the naked eye. Some people say they are. I don't know. Maybe. I don't have very good vision, so they're not to me. Maybe if you had great vision and you had really good conditions and you weren't, you know, anywhere near a city, no light pollution and all that stuff. I suppose it's possible. I don't know. I'm going to look it up later on the googly machine to see yeah, if it's possible. Yeah, totally. But also, Jupiter, it, it's not football-shaped, right? Uh, so, I don't know. That's kind of weird. Um, and now, the reason why I think that... Uh, the, so, again, the cover page says Jupiter, and you're like, that could be Jupiter. But when you read the file, uh, the witness says that, that, you know, like, we're talking about this form that's really awesome... It says that the object was approximately the size of a dime at arm's length. So think about that. A dime at arm's length, there are no condition that's possible for Jupiter to be that big. Think about that. What do you think, Agent Ether? I think it was Jupiter. A dime at arm's length? Football shaped? (laughs) That's huge. Jupiter never looks that big. It was a bird. At 30 degrees elevation? Light reflecting off the bottom stomach of a bird. With with orbs coming in and out of it? 
Definitely a bird. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it could be Jupiter, I suppose. But when you look at what the what the observers or witnesses are saying, it just, it doesn't really make sense. And the witness says in the forum, what first called their attention was the brightness of the object and the movement of the object. Guess what, guys? Jupiter and its moons, they're not moving around. They appear stationary, more or less. They move very, very slowly, you know, in, in the night sky. And it, the witness said the flight path was that it moved westerly and back to northwest where it was first observed. And then it repeated this course several times. Again, Jupiter doesn't do that. Uh, there were two witnesses, uh, names redacted, but one was identified as a writer for IBM and a housewife. So I'm guessing the witness's wife and our, uh, uh, you know, the Hubby reporter. wife team. Hmm? Hubby wife team. Yeah. What? And the way it's written, it appears that the husband was the one reporting the UFO. And then they were saying that their wife was also there. Uh, so here's a quote from the report. I believe that the UFO seen by these people may have been a phenomenon associated with the temperature inversion. New York State Police confirmed the sighting. Two patrolmen saw the object. Okay, so that's not from the witness. That's just from the report. But uh, it's interesting. They note that some police officers also confirmed the sighting. And it's like, dude, how often have you seen on like the local six o'clock news and in this news, <laughs> three police officers on patrol reported seeing Jupiter in the night sky. You know, like, it's just, it's just weird to me that it wasn't Jupiter. Come on. Come on. It was not Jupiter. Um, and this file also says that one photograph, possibly one photograph, which has not yet been developed, uh, redacted will forward same if it turns out. So they, there's apparently a photograph taken, but there's no photograph in the file. So either the photographed turned out to be completely blank or it's was lost or something else happened to it. Who knows? Um, so yeah, so this <laughs> had a note in here for, for something else that I forgot was in there that didn't make sense. Okay. Anyways. Um, yeah. So that was a short one, but it was, there's not much there to go on, but it was uh, probably not Jupiter. And I guess we'll just leave it at that. So let's see, we have, okay, I don't have too much more. I have one more, I think. So we might as well get through it while we're here. This one is from Burbank, Ohio on the 3rd of January. It was a civilian, one object, five minute sighting, and it was a ground visual. The conclusion on the cover part card said something has been crossed. Oh yeah. That, uh, these are my notes here. Sorry. I shouldn't read these <laughs> verbatim. I'm trying to hurry up is why. <laughs> so the, what caught my eye on this one is the conclusion was redacted. I've never seen that before. I haven't either, but on on the conclusion box on the cover, they had the conclu it looked like they had crossed something out. And then the there's a word written in satellite that's so the one thing that something is crossed out with like a thick black marker, like what you'd use for redacting something. And then there's the word satellite is in that box, but that's crossed out. And then they have in there handwritten um probable airplane and then a check mark after that. It's handwritten in the box. So I'm like, dude, what? They had no idea for this one. They're just, <laughs> they're like, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, they're, so there's possibly three explanations. Two of them crossed out, one of them redacted, which I've never seen before in a file, a conclusion redacted. That's just really weird to me. I've never seen that. You know, it's so that really caught my attention. So I really wanted to look at this one. So the brief summary on the front card is 
object appeared in the north-northeast and disappeared in the south-southwest on a straight and level course. Object appeared at a, as a white light. No wings or exhaust and no noise was observed. Observer was moving in an auto at the time. And then handwritten under this is, after checking, checking map and observers, sketch, it was found that the object was traveling east. Uh, and then a big X. East is underlined twice. So I'm not sure why they would handwrite like a big X there, and I'm not sure why they would underline East twice, but uh, maybe they wanted the, any potential reader to be extra aware of the fact. I don't know. So then we're, we have the questionnaire that we've mentioned before. Um, 10.20 p.m. on Interstate 71. Item number 14, did the object disappear while you were watching it? Yes, it came from north-northeast and disappeared south-southwest on a straight, direct course. No sound, bright white light. Uh, item number 18, we wish to know the angular size. Hold a match, stick at arm's length, in line with the known object, and note how much of the object is covered by the head of the match. If you had performed this experiment at the time of the sighting, how much of the object would have been covered by the match head? Um, and then the witness says about a quarter of the object. Object would be a half a match long. So that's wow. pretty big. <laughs> Box number 19, draw a picture, label, um, etc. So they drew a picture of two rectangles with arrows pointing to the right and only one object, but it seemed to get longer as it got closer. So there's two rectangles, one bigger than the other. And um, they were indicating that the object got bigger as it got closer. And it says, or they wrote, only one object, but it seemed to get longer as it got closer. No vapor trail was left behind as an airplane leaves. No wings, no protrusions, no exhaust or vapor trails, although it could have seemed to be part of the object as it got longer and closer. This was all handwritten by the witness. I'm not sure what they mean by this, but maybe they're saying, I guess it's possible there's a vapor trail, but the, what they drew was just like a rectangle. It was no vapor trail or anything. So I don't know. It's kind of weird. They estimate the speed at 500 miles an hour and estimated the object was five miles away. And it says five miles away, but since they said it came overhead, basically, that has to be like when it started, you know, when they first sighted the object, not um, the whole time. Okay. In box number 26, it says, in order that you can give as clear a picture as possible of what you saw, describe in your own words a common object or objects, which, when placed up in the sky, would give the same appearance as the object you saw. And it says, a thick, short cigar. So, you know. Oh, one of those cigar UFOs. Yeah, I've heard exactly. of those. Yeah, but a thick, short cigar, mm -hmm. which is, so, and plus when they drew, because they drew a rectangle, maybe not like a rounded ends, more like, I don't know. So box 27 says indicate it was uh, indicates it was about that's the one where they have like the the pointing hands and the compass to indicate the elevation and stuff. It's about 40 degrees elevation and that they first saw it to the north northeast north northeast and then they saw it to the south southwest um, or left to the south southwest. Box 28 they drew its path and they drew it passing over highway 71 and box 31 was anyone else with you? Yes. And they also saw the object, and that was the wife, name redacted. Uh, box 35, uh, information you feel pertinent and which is not adequately covered in the specific points of the questionnaire or a narrative explanation of your sighting. And there's a drawing of the path of the UFO, and then it's written in there, 
we saw a bright white light to our left and ahead. At first, we thought it might be an airplane, but it was too big and it seemed to get longer. Probably because it was getting closer. Perhaps it was um, turning. I don't know. That's what that was my thought. Like, um, as as it gets closer, it appears to get longer, right? Maybe they saw it uh, sort of turned or rotated, and as it got closer, it was also rotating. So maybe that's why it got bigger, or maybe it just got bigger because it was approaching them very rapidly. I don't know. So, anyways, um, but it was too big, and it seemed to get. But it was big, and it seemed to get longer. Probably because it was getting closer. It was not an airplane. We slowed down to watch it. It was on a direct course, stayed at the same height, got brighter as it got closer, and then disappeared flying south-southwest. Then the last page of the file, page 10, is a handwritten note from the witness. Concerning UFOs, the recent activity in Michigan prompts me to write to you. At 10.20 p.m. on the evening of January 3, 1966, my wife and I saw something similar. Now, I'm assuming that they mean the Michigan swamp gas case, which, if you're interested, go ahead and listen to episode number one of the podcast. We, we, I say we, but I was by myself on that one. Um, but that's what I'm assuming they're talking about here. It seemed to fly a course from north-northeast to south-southeast at a standard height. It did not vary. We were on Interstate 71, two miles east of State, uh, State Highway 76 at Burbank. It was solid white or light, like a cigar. I wrote to David Dieter, science editor of the Cleveland Press. He thought it might be a vapor trail. It was not. It did not go up or down, but disappeared on a straight course. Um, so that's pretty much that file in a nutshell. But I thought that was a really fascinating case, and it really grabbed my attention that it was uh, the, the, the conclusion was redacted. What was the original conclusion that would be redacted? It's just, I've never seen that before. It's just completely bizarre. I can't make any sense of that. It's weird. What do you think, Agent Ether? I think that, I don't know. <laughs> I yeah. think it's like a diamond in the rough. Like, yeah. what are the odds that you would stumble over that? I know. Yeah. You know, looking through, like you said, there's so many files. So what are the odds you would come across that? That's really fantastic. Yeah. And this one, the, um, the conclusion was a probable airplane. And I don't think I said, but I'm in this one somewhere, I didn't take notes of it, but somewhere in the, the witness said, not an airplane. And this is something you'll see over and over again, where the witness will say specifically, they'll say in their statement, this was not an airplane, but the, the cover card will say airplane. <laughs> you know, <laughs> This was an aircraft. And then the witness specifically says, this is not an aircraft. I work at an Air Force base. I, I saw that it was not an aircraft, you know, but, you know, that happens over and over again in the files. Anyways, so that was that. Uh, all right. Hour 36. So it's not too bad. We're over a little bit than our normal go, our normal go. But hey, we had plenty of material. Plenty of material. Plenty of stuff. There's There's so much stuff in these files that... Like, I want to do a ton, ton more of these. I just don't know that everybody wants to listen to a bunch of these. So I try to space them out. But man, I love these blue book files. So we're going to do more of them. <laughs> Hopefully you guys like listening to them. Because there are so many good witness statements in there. So many good cases that you couldn't possibly cover them all. Like I said, 12,000, over 12,000 in 1966 alone. Not all of them are good, but many of them are. Any final thoughts, Agent Ether? 
Well, I had a lot of fun. What can I say? Another great episode. <laughs> yeah, it's fun just digging <laughs> through these, just looking at stuff, right? Yeah, I ended up spending a lot more time than I planned to because the Blue Book files, you know, it's pretty easy to dig in and find something and do a little summary. But then I found this case and oh boy. <laughs> right down that rabbit hole, right? <laughs> oh man, it was like hours of uh, <laughs> hours of sifting through it and the time just flew by. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I love looking through this stuff. All right, that's about all we got for you this week. If you enjoyed the show, you could really help us out by leaving a good review wherever you listen to podcasts and telling your friends about the show. Keep it strange. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Also, I forgot. We have a new Patreon subscriber. Oh. So our Patreon is fairly new, so we don't have a ton of subscribers yet, but we had a new one, and I wanted to give them a shout out. So hold on. I got to, I should have pulled this up ahead of time, but let me pull our Patreon up um, so that I can give a shout out to our new our new Patreon subscriber. What do we got here? Where do I find that? I'm not even familiar with the with the uh, interface yet here. Oh yeah, okay. Here we go. Sarah Jorgensen is a new Patreon subscriber. Thank Thanks you. a lot. We really appreciate your support, and I hope you enjoy the Patreon. We appreciate you so much. Thank you, and uh, once again, keep it strange. You can't steal <laughs> my line. Well, I mean, you already said it, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And also to the Patreon subscribers, we usually do an after hours, but um, Agent Ether, I'm assuming, is going to run off somewhere as she does after the show. I got to put the kids to bed. And Agent ETA and Kruger are not here. So they're, I mean, I could just talk to myself for a little <laughs> while <laughs> for the after hours for Patreon, but that <laughs> might be kind of weird. So uh, no after hours this time, unfortunately, but hopefully next time. So we'll catch you guys next time. Mm, bye.